the title of this morning's message is The Triumphant Cry. He is risen. Amen? He is risen all over the world today. People are declaring and crying out the cry of triumph. He is risen. Amen? Now this is really good news. It is the best news that has ever been. Sin is taken away. Death is defeated. And in him we too are raised to new life. Jesus as our covenant representative did everything did everything to start this new covenant, a new way of being in relationship with God. He didn't just die for us. He died as us. Because of this new covenant, we as believers can declare triumphantly, we have won! He has won. Therefore, we have won. Jesus has purchased our freedom. We are no longer slaves to sin. Now, we are God's own sons. This is good news. Amen? This word triumphant, I looked in Webster's 1828 dictionary for the definition of triumphant. It means rejoicing as for victory, victorious, graced with conquest. The act of conquering, the act of overcoming, the act of vanquishing opposition by force. It has the connotation of celebration. You see, you can win a victory and not be happy about it. <laughs> but triumph says, I have taken dominion and I rejoice in what is accomplished. That is the definition of triumph. So this morning, I want to take you to five different places where you can hear the cry of triumph. The first place is the cradle, the cross, the cave, the crown, and the cup. <laughs> the first triumphant cry we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 2, and it is the birth of Christ, starting with verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is a triumphant cry. A Savior has come. Jesus can't die until he's born. <laughs> That's pretty simple. But see, this isn't just any baby. This isn't just any man. This is a person who is all God and all man. And because he is all God, he has blood that is holy. His blood is not stained with sin. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. In order to be our sacrificial lamb, he had to be born with the very blood of God. So this is good news. The Savior has come. But then it goes on and it says, And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This was the cry of triumph. The Savior has come. Goodwill to all men, not just to Jews. Goodwill to all men. Now, Right about that time, there was probably some very nervous demons 
Because there's this big party going on in the heavenlies where something stupendous has happened. They are rejoicing in triumph that Christ has been born already before he does anything. Heaven rejoices. Heaven is declaring the song of triumph. Good will has come to all men. So the demons actually had a very good reason to be nervous because the Savior, the Deliverer, he who was promised, would not just overcome an enemy, but the enemy, the enemy of our souls, the destroyer of mankind, the thief that comes to kill and steal and destroy. Heaven was rejoicing when singing the song of triumph, even though the Messiah was just a baby. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says this. This is God the Father speaking. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He is speaking to the serpent who has deceived Adam and Eve. And he says, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. The it that they were talking about was the seed that would come through Abraham, that is the Christ. And he's saying, this Christ, this deliverer, this savior, he's gonna do some head stomping. Some pretty good head stomping. So yes, the demons were probably nervous that day and they had every right to be. The kingdom of darkness was soon to be overcome. Now, the reason they, didn't, they couldn't relax is because, you see, the cry of triumph continued throughout all of Christ's life. You see, he did something very wonderful for us. He fulfilled the law. In Acts chapter 10, 38, it says this, speaking of Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all, all who were oppressed. Healing all who, who do you know someone oppressed? Okay, kingdom people. <laughs> all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. First John 3, 8 says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This word destroy means to loosen, dissolve, break, and destroy. His whole life, every time he obeyed the law, every time he didn't sin, every time he walked in love, every time the sound of triumph could be heard. He had to be pure. He had to be sinless. He had to fulfill the law completely. He went around doing things like casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, and speaking the truth of the kingdom of God. All through his life, the sound of triumph could be heard. So we see this cry of triumph, a savior has come at the cradle. All through his life, that same triumphant cry was heard, a savior is here. A savior has come, a savior is here, the deliverer has come, and then, then came the cross. Because he lived in perfect obedience to his father and to the law, he was suited to be our Passover lamb. In Matthew 5.17 it says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Many times we hear today that Christians are under the law still, and this is their proof text. Look, he didn't come to destroy it. 
Well, if you look at what that really means, we just looked at it. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Did he actually cause them to cease to be? Or were they loosened? Were people set free? It isn't that he didn't have power. He just didn't have power where there was Christ. He has power, but not where there is Christ. And so he was saying here, look, in those days, what the Pharisees were doing, they were saying, we want to loosen the requirements of the law. We want to bring them down so maybe we can get to them a little easier. You see, if I dumb down or water down the law, then why would I need a Savior? See, if I can make the law doable, then I can be righteous in my own mind. Not before God, but in my own mind. So often, we want to try to fulfill the law. But what Jesus did on, on um, the Sermon on the Mount is he raised the bar. Part of what he was doing when he was declaring the kingdom, he says, look, the kingdom is not as easy as you think it is. You cannot enter in your own accord, in your own work, in your own righteousness. And he says, in fact, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, they were sticklers on the outside. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Impossible. Impossible without Christ. And that was the point. He says, you want God's standard of living? Here it is. Let's see if you can reach it. And oh, by the way, you have to do it every second of every minute of every day of your entire life. If you're going to stand before God on the basis of the law, you have got to be perfect. Not just in performance, but in motive. <laughs> Sometimes we can make our flesh do what's right, but we can't always change our motive. <laughs> he says it's perfection that's required. The purpose of the law is to show us just how imperfect we are. How impossible it is that without a Savior we are doomed. That's why this was such a triumphant cry. A Savior has come. A Deliverer has come. Rejoice. Jesus came to uphold the law and fulfill it completely. Perfect in motive. Perfect in performance. Perfect in love. Perfect. And he was the only one. In Matthew 5.18 it says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise, no wise pass from the law, till. I love that little word. Till all be fulfilled. That's what Jesus was doing. That was the triumphant cry from the cradle to the cross. He was fulfilling every jot and every tittle. In Galatians 3.10 it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Christ was the only one who could. Christ was the only one who did. So every time Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the requirements, you could hear the cry throughout creation, A Savior has come! A Savior has come! Someone who can do it. Someone who has done it. He has fulfilled the law perfectly. I love that word triumph, graced to conquer. He was completely victorious over sin, completely victorious over Satan, 
completely victorious over the flesh before he ever died. He was victorious. If he had not laid down his life, he would be alive today. But he would be the only one who would ever see the light of God's face. Death had no power over him. None. Not even in his physical form. If he was going to die, it was going to be because he laid down his life. He voluntarily had to do it. He conquered sin, Satan, and the flesh with every step he took. He was our sacrificial lamb without blemish. He was and is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now, he fulfilled that part of the law perfectly and completely, but he did something even more wonderful. He completed the second half. You see, there's two requirements of the law, perfection, and if you're not, death. That's fulfilling the law in its completeness. Now, he didn't have to die for him. But because he did the first half of the law, he could do the second half for us. <laughs> Actually, he did both of those for us. That's what I love about justification. When God calls us just, not guilty, righteous, he says all of that obedience that Christ did every moment of every day is in my account. He says, I see you as if you have never sinned, as if you've never had a bad motive, only in Christ. So the first demand of the law is perfection. The second demand is death for the lack of perfection. Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, which is why the sacrificial system had to be put in place in the first covenant to make atonement for their failure to be perfect. They had to bring a lamb in their place because he knew they couldn't keep it. They thought they could. They really thought they could. They said, all that you command us to do, we will do it. How many people do you know go, I am good enough. I am good enough. God should take me just the way I am. I'm not a bad person. But God says, the requirement is perfection. Perfection. And no one is good enough. This brings us to the second C in our series, the cross. John chapter 19, starting with verse 14, says this. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour he, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Four little words. Where they crucified him. So much is in those four little words. And two others besides him. One on either side. And Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, 
and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. God wanted all the world to know, this is the king of the Jews. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, he is the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, slightly irritated, <laughs> says, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. I love that. All things. The law completely fulfilled. The penalty for failure completely paid. And mama taken care of. <laughs> I love that. All things accomplished. Everything for the whole world and my mom too. <laughs> Only. Only Christ on the cross, bleeding, dying, could think of his mom. Such love. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put hyssop on it and put it to his mouth, so that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the only gospel that records this one word. This one word, it is finished, is how we say it in English. But it's one word, it is teleo. And it means this, to complete, to execute, to discharge a debt, to accomplish, to fill up, to finish, to pay. We could very well use three other words. Paid in full. Paid in full. If ever there was a triumphant cry, it is to lay All is paid. All is paid. All is fulfilled. Taleo. But what was it that was finished? What was it that was paid? What was it that was accomplished? Romans 3.24 says this, being justified, declared not guilty, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
I love the word redemption. It means this, repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. The act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors. It is the payment of an equivalent, a ransom. We were prisoners of sin. We were prisoners of Satan. We were prisoners with no way out. But God so loved the world that he said, I will pay an equivalent, an equivalent. Does that make sense to you? That God looks at the world and then his son and says, yep, equivalent. My son's life is worth saving everyone. Whosoever will. Yes, this is an equivalent. This is an appropriate payment. This is sufficient. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed before the foundations of the world that you were worth dying for, that I was worth dying for, that Christ was the equivalent in value to the Father. That is amazing. In Ephesians 1.7 it says, speaking of Christ, in whom we have redemption, being purchased out of a slave system, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, God's blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal buying us out of the slave system. Eternally we are saved for us. Jesus completely fulfilled the law in performance and in paying the penalty. And when he did that, when he bought us out of that system of slavery, this is what Galatians 4.4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son made of a woman under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ, a co-heir, co-equivalent. He's our big brother. Whatever he inherits, we inherit too. We can now declare the triumphant cry to all who will listen. The runaway slaves of sin can come home. The debt has been paid in full. You can come home, not as a prodigal who was asking to be a servant in his father's house, but as a son amazingly loved and blessed and accepted. Even though we were like the prodigal out in the world, living to please ourselves, we were prodigals, but no more. We are sons, and our Father has run to us in the body of his Son, and he has lavished his love on us with hugs and kisses and says, forever you are accepted, forever you are loved, forever I will love you, forever you are mine. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together him, 
haven't forgiven you all trespasses. Colossians 2.14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary. I love this word contrary. When you look it up in the Greek, it says covertly, sneakily. It was sneakily contrary to us. <laughs> I don't know why Christians want to be under the law. It's against us. <laughs> it's sneaky. It condemns you. But he says he took all of that and he nailed it to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, having made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He has spoiled the enemy. Spoiled means to take the goods of an enemy by open force. You see, the law may be sneaky, but Jesus isn't. <laughs> Jesus came to do some head stomping. His father prophesied in the garden, there's coming one who's going to stomp on your head, and he's going to take back everything you've just deceived mankind out of. And Jesus did some really good head stomping. Hebrews 9.26 says, For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This word is to divorce. When two people get divorced, guess what? Neither has a legal claim on the other ever again. Sin has no legal claim on you. God says he has divorced sin from his children. Sin is no longer counted against us, and it no longer has power over us, and it has no right to claim any power or dominion over us. Because of this one word, teleo, paid in full. Can you hear the cry of triumph from the cross? It didn't look very triumphant, but it was. He overcame all the power of the enemy and spoiled him completely. And now we have hit the Lord's dominion to take dominion in this world. This leads us to our third C, the cave. Matthew 28, 1. And this is our cry today, our triumphant cry. He is risen. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I like that. Can't you see that? It's just, just a matter of fact, I'm going to just move this over and then I'm going to relax on top of it. <laughs> so easy for him. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples the word. He is risen. This 
is a triumphant cry that never before could have been declared. Triumph over death. Even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that wasn't a true triumph. It was just a delay. <laughs> Lazarus would die again. But Christ, because he was perfect, because he completely fulfilled the law in its entirety, in his perfection and in paying the penalty, because he was perfect, the fact that he rose from the dead declares he was sufficient. Because the power of death is sin. Uh, in First Corinthians it says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So what did Jesus get rid of? Both of those things. <laughs> he got rid of death, and he got rid of sin. So nothing can keep us in the ground. Nothing will keep us in the ground. Our bodies will rise again just as his did. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. It is the grace to conquer. The grace of conquest. In Revelations 1.17 it says this. This is John speaking. And when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. I like that. He says, it's really me. I am the one that died. I am the one that was raised to life. And I'm alive forevermore. And oh, just in case you wanted to know, I got the keys of death and hell. I got it all. Nothing has the power to keep you from me ever again. This brings us to our fourth C, the triumphant cry from the crown. In Hebrews 2.9 it says this, but we see Jesus, He's, they're talking about him as our high priest, who was made a little lower than the angels, for what purpose? For the suffering of death. But he was crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We will never die. We will unzip our earth suit, but we will never die. We will never experience death. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is the triumphant cry from the crown, from the right hand of the Father. Jesus says, brothers, family, come home. You're family now. Brothers, we have triumphed. You are in the family. Come home. 
And John 20, 17 says this. Ah, let me back up just a bit here. From the crown, from the place of authority. He isn't calling from heaven, so to speak. When we accept Christ, we too are seated at the right hand of the Father. We too are crowned with his crown. He says we are co-heirs. We are co-heirs. We have his power, his authority, his ability to take dominion. We have his ability to cry with triumph. All is done. All is forgiven. All is made right. And you are made family. That, that was always the purpose. From the foundation of the world, it wasn't that he wanted to forgive sin. He wanted to get family. The way to get family, the way to get brothers, the way to get sisters was to pay the penalty for all the sin. All of that was the means, the crowning glory, was that we would sit with him. This was always his heart, that we would reign and rule with him, him in us and through us. The last one, the last C, is the cup. In John chapter 20, and by the cup, I mean the communion cup. John chapter 20, starting in verse 17, says this. I got ahead of my notes here. <laughs> Regarding the brethren, I really love this. When I was studying for this message, when you think about preaching on Easter, you're like, where do I begin? <laughs> and I kept reading through the Gospels. This is the only thing that jumped out and got me. This is where Jesus has risen from the dead, and Mary is looking for him. And he comes upon Mary, and he startles her. And Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. This is the only place in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where we see Jesus directly referring to his disciples as his brother. Before the cross, they were his disciples. They were his friends. But they were not yet his brethren. God becomes our Father, truly our Father, through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is the night before his crucifixion. And at the end of the dinner, he takes some bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat. Then he takes the cup and he blesses that. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, the covenant in my blood. Drink of it. Drink all of it. This is covenant talk. Whenever a new covenant was going to be instituted, there was a blood sacrifice, which was Christ. There was an oath, which the Father had promised the Son. And there was a meal. And see, we understand covenant mostly, I think, in terms of marriage. When a man and a woman become husband and wife, we understand all that he is becomes hers. And all that she is becomes his. And the two are no longer two, but one covenant. 
covenant. This is what Jesus was telling them. This was now possible through his sacrifice, that the two would become one. We are his bride. He is our groom. And he says, when you take of the cup, and when you take of the bread, remember, you and I are one. Not only are we brethren, not only can we understand that we are family, but we are the most intimate kind of family, the most beloved kind of family. We are his bride. And he says, when you eat and when you drink, understand all that I am, all about who I am, becomes yours. What really spoke to me in this was that we understand that Jesus died for us. We understand that Jesus died as us. But in doing so, it was so that he could give himself to us, so we could have a covenant that was indestructible. Hebrews says that he lives and maintains our covenant by the power of an indestructible life. That life is ours, indestructible, forever eternal. His love is indestructible. His power is indestructible. His authority is indestructible. And he says, if you receive me, you get it all. You get it all. As much as he wants us to have it all, more than anything, he wants us to have him. He says when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we partake of that intimacy. We partake of that wholeness. We partake of our covenant. This morning, we're going to partake, and we are going to declare the triumphant cry. You see, we heard five different places where you heard a triumphant cry. The Savior has come, paid in full. He is risen. You are brothers. And now, out of all of those, it was two angels and it was Christ. Those are the only ones who've been declaring the triumphant cry. But in the communion, we declare. Out of our mouth, we say, He is risen. He sits at the right hand of the Father. I am in Him. I am triumphant. And I receive all of my covenant benefits. And more than that, more than the benefits, I receive Him. The power of an indestructible life. Amen? And as they minister the elements to you, partake as you feel led.